Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. They took my jacket off my body. I really fought them on it, but they took it off of me and then they found a quarter pound of cocaine. A quarter pound is a lot of cocaine. So they knew something was up. They tried to get me to snitch on other people. I wouldn't. And so three months later, the SWAT team came to my house and decided to finish the job. Everybody said, you got to go to rehab. If you don't go to rehab and you don't clean up your act, you're soon you're going to go to prison for like 20 years. All the quantity, the gun, everything, it looked really, really, really terrible. And so just for self-preservation, I said, let's go to rehab. You know, that's the only thing I could think of. We all think, oh, went to jail, horrible person. I don't want them to think that. Not even just about me, about other people. Because they're going to meet people who've made mistakes. And I don't want the mistake to be the defining moment of somebody's life. life, life, life. What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode. Today's episode is with Dr. Adi Jaffe. So this was a really, really fascinating interview. And here's why. Dr. Jaffe grew up in Tel Aviv. And he came over to the States and he had some challenges assimilating and trying to figure his life out. And that led to drugs and that led to alcohol, which led to him becoming a dealer, which led to a SWAT team. It's a story that reads like a movie that has such a beautiful ending. I cannot wait for you to get into this episode. So I'm going to let this episode speak for itself Give it a listen. Let me know what you think about it. I'm really proud of this one. And I learned a lot. And it's it was a little bit of a stretch for me because it's really far outside of a world that I know and understand. But hopefully I did a good job with it. And uh, I hope that you enjoy it. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Adi Jaffe. Adi, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. So I think a great starting off point would be to talk about growing up in Israel. I was recently in Israel. I'm not Jewish, but I've always wanted to go to Israel and I freaking loved it. So it's an amazing country, huh? Amazing. I went to Tel Aviv and I, I guess the first question is, what's the major difference for you between mm. living in either place, you know, in general? Well, you know, as you know, because you spent some time there, but you spent time all over Europe. Israel is a very European country. 
And when I say Europe, I mean kind of like the Middle East European parts, right? So like south of France or, um, I mean, really anywhere on the coast in Italy. And there's a certain joy for life that exists there that I find is is missing in the U.S., which is a very puritanical kind of country, right? Um, it's not that religion doesn't play an important role in Israel. Obviously, it does, and it does in the U.S. as well. But I feel like in the U.S., everybody's protected. Everybody's always on defense. Mm-hmm. And in in Israel, people just live out loud. And one of the easiest ways, I don't know, were you there in the summer? Uh, we went for Christmas. Okay. So you were there in the winter. So you didn't get this quite as fully as you do otherwise. But like, like in Europe, you know, people go to dinner at 9 p.m., right? And they, uh, they finish their dinner at 11, then they go have a cup of coffee or like a drink outside. They, there's this life force, this energy about when we go in the summer, because uh, everybody thinks this always has to do with drinking alcohol or doing drugs, and it doesn't. Like, we stayed in Yafo, which is just outside of Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. Uh, an old city. And um, at two o'clock, you walk by the coffee shops and there's guys like playing, you know, backgammon or chess, drinking coffee, talking at 2 a.m. And it's full, it's packed and there's music playing. Even during the day, you'll walk around in restaurants, music playing outside. So I think one of the things that I got really used to when I was a kid was this kind of joie de vivre, as the French would say, and when you're a kid, you can make it up because you and your friends run around like crazy and you still get to have fun. But as adults, and this is why I'm jealous sometimes of some of the pictures you post, fun is not something that's appreciated. It's not something that people believe is a, is a good indicator of your life somehow. And it's weird to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether it's Italy or, you know, different parts of France, like you mentioned, Joie de Vivre, there's La Dolce Vida, and we have happy hour. <laughs> You know, like, I know, <laughs> but it's not even really happy hour. Like, happy hour is a euphemism. I know. So happy hours, they're like, you hate your damn life. So come drink with us so you can stand your life when you leave. That's what happy hour really means. Can you describe what it was like moving to New York to going, moving to New York, to a New York high school, let's say, let's go there, moving to a New York high school from Israel. Like I, I can't imagine what that was like for you at that time in your life. Yeah. So I wish it was actually as cool as you just made it sound. Um, but we actually moved to a, a suburb of Chicago first, Skokie, Illinois, made famous mm-hmm. by the usual suspects, if you remember that line. Yep. And uh, he was in a barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois. Classic American suburb. Uh, so much so, I like to tell the story. You know, I'm from Israel, and so we would watch movies like you guys do. We just get them like six months later. And so I'd watch the Nightmare on Elm Street series, and we moved to Skokie, Illinois, across from this uh, junior high, huge open field, and right next to us is Elm Street. And oh my god, I was so naive about America and what it meant. I was like, holy shit, my parents moved us to the fucking Elm Street, like. This is insane. Like, <laughs> fucking, this is where Freddy Krueger lives, and this is where my parents decided to move us to. I had no idea that, that every city, every town has an Elm Street, a Main Street, you know, a Maple Street, whatever. So that's how naive I was when I first moved to this country. And yeah, I was the weird foreign kid that, you know, spoke okay English, but with a weird accent. And I didn't know the habits. Like, it's embarrassing as shit to say. I don't know. I, I learned some of my stuff from TV and music. Cause I just didn't, you know, it's not like you walk up to kids and say, okay, so what do you guys talk like? And what do you behave like? You know, you can't do that. So 
I'd have to figure out ways to learn. So like the Beastie Boys, fuck, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Vanilla Ice. Like I had to learn, this is 1990. This is 1990, just in my, in my defense. And I just had to kind of learn yeah. to try to live like a normal human being. So by the time I moved to, you said New York, but it was really upstate New York. It was Rochester, New York. At least I knew how to be an American. And, you know, every country has rules. Like I got asked in school all the time if I used to have a car, if my family had a car back in Israel, or if we rode a camel to school. I'd never seen a camel in my life. Like everybody just had a complete misconception about who I was. And you know, I mean, unless you had a very different experience with junior high than I did, but like junior high and high school are the times where you're just trying to figure out how to be a normal human. Um, being on the outside and being looked down at was not my favorite part of it. Yeah, I bet. I want to I want to dig a little bit into sort of like some backgrounds just just for context there. You uh you came from an upper middle class family. Your dad was a doc, your mom uh did HR for a big bank in Israel. And as in most Jewish families, they have a super high education expectation that's put yeah. upon you. How did that sort of impact you emotionally at that time in your life? Well, you know, here's the thing. I didn't know it had any impact, uh, but I, you know, I've now studied psychology for the last, God knows, 20 years or something like that. So what I know is that it set up a specific expectation for me of what the world was going to look like when I grew up. And I didn't feel like I had a lot of autonomy. I didn't feel like I had a lot of choice in it, even though I felt like I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to be like my dad. But I also had a ton of conflict with my family. My dad walked out on us uh, when I was, I think, about nine and... He had cheated on my mom. She kicked him out of the house. Now, he only left for four days, but it destroyed my relationship with him for 20 years. Um, I hated him for it. He left for four days. We didn't know he was coming back. Then he came back. And then in my family, I don't know what your family was like, but nobody talked about anything in my family. So just picture this, right? Like my dad leaves. My mom tells us that he cheated on her and he left us forever. Four days later, he comes back. Nobody tells us anything. Why is he back? He's back forever. Like nobody, it's as if those four or five days never happened. And um, it left a huge mark on me. Again, he and I were in conflict for literally the next 20 years and I was rebelling against him all the time. You know, it was really a weird place to kind of want to follow in the footsteps of a man you admired until you were eight, but now hate and you had no other choice. So I just tried everything and, and trying everything. And especially because I lived in this place and I didn't really fit in. I tried alcohol, I tried weed, I tried whatever could make me fit in more and f- and actually pissed my dad off and be rebellious. Like that, I was pretty happy about that piece of it. You know, it's interesting. I, I haven't shared this publicly before, but I had a similar situation, not at nine or 10. I was about 16, where my dad had cheated as well, moved out, and then came back after a, really? about a month. And oh, I haven't heard from anybody else who's had that same experience. Yeah. And it was not discussed. It was, wow. uh, it was, it was really, I'll tell you where it was really fucked up. It was, I know that you, your mom confided in you during that time yep. as well. And so did my mom. And I remember doing the best I could to give her the tools that I thought I had, but what wound up happening was I wound up hating him and she wound up taking him back and loving him. And there was no way that I was able to get over it. And, you know, in retrospect, if she had to do it again, she probably wouldn't have shared it with me. So I I hadn't even thought about that until we started discussing it. So, you know, these little traumas or big traumas really, you know, have a lot to do with it. And I know that you went to, uh, 
you know, at, at that point in your life, you were trying to figure things out and your parents thought, well, hey, let's send them to a Jewish camp. That's That's got to take care of everything, right? <laughs> well, yeah. So you go a, to a Jew... It, it was an Israeli camp. I was going to say, camp. you go to a Jewish camp. Uh, oh, it was an Israeli camp. Okay. Israeli well, camp. you know, n- now you find alcohol, right? Well, yeah. Uh, at, that, at that camp. Yeah, and these were... Can you um, kind of describe what that was like well, for you? Oh, 100%. I mean, and here's the thing. I felt more placed with those people than I had with anybody else because they spoke my language, they knew my habits, all that stuff. So it was just, it felt more natural. But I got to point out, I'm a pretty, I was a pretty anxious kid. Like it was better than other places, but I was still really, really anxious. And there were these cute girls that I liked and I'm not, I don't, I'm much better at it now, but like at 14, 15, I was not good with that. That was really confusing and anxiety provoking for me. So at the end of one of these nights, you know, it's a sleepover camp. So the boys are supposed to be in one cabin and the girls in another, but duh, we're 14 or 15 years old. We definitely joined forces. And so everybody's hanging out in this one big cabin, bunk beds everywhere. There's like 20 boys, 20 girls. It's like a party. People brought some music. This is before the day of Bluetooth speakers. So you could imagine what that looked like. And um, as we're sitting around, somebody pulls out a handle of vodka. Now I'd seen alcohol before. I'm Jewish. And so it came out during ceremonies and dinners. And I, I'd seen my parents drink. It's not like I didn't know what it was, but I'd never really drank before. I might've had a sip of something and didn't really like it earlier. Never, never drank. And it starts passing around. It's my memory is, it was literally like a handle, like one of those gallon sized handles. And it gets to me and it's heavy and it's in this glass container. And I know I'm supposed to drink it. And there's zero probability that I'm going to be the one kid to say, Oh no, no, I'm okay. Thank you. I don't, I don't need to drink. Like, no chance. I'm not going to embarrass myself. So I go to have a drink and I could not have expected the burning that this shit created in my throat. Like, I mean, it feels like you're drinking gasoline and it goes down and to look brave, I took a couple of other swigs and I'm like trying to just keep it down and not throw up. And I pass it around and then I gradually like five minutes, 10 minutes, get that warm feeling that you get. And then I'm buzzed. And I got to tell you, it was pretty clear to me that I like being buzzed. I didn't, Think about other people for the first time in my life, it seemed like. I could talk to people and not care about what they thought about what I said, which was amazing. And the most important thing is I could talk to girls and um, just feel like I was being myself and not be ashamed and embarrassed. And you know, I got to fool around with one of the girls that night, so it really felt like on all fronts, this thing was a success. And I came home. And now the kids, those other Israeli kids, they knew that I drank because I drank at the party. So I got invited to parties where they had already been drinking for months and maybe a couple of years before. I just never got invited to those parties before. And now I started drinking every weekend. All right. Now that leads into stronger and stronger drugs, right? We go from alcohol, which I'm assuming is a drug, right? Yeah. It leads to stronger and stronger drugs. First it was ecstasy and then ultimately it wound up to the uh, to one of the big ones, meth. Yeah. Um, I've personally uh, never done a, a drug in my life. It was 30 before I had my first sip of alcohol. My dad was an alcoholic and it terrified me. Mm. So I had the opposite yeah. where I didn't want to touch it. But can you take me back to the first moment, if you can remember, that you tried meth where were you? What did it feel like? Can you kind of like walk me through that? Because sure. the reason why I'm asking that question is it's so far from my reality. Mm. It terrified me so much that it's almost like 
you know, you telling me the story of what it was like to levitate. Like I can't even imagine. Well, we should talk what about it was that like too. To be. Um, <laughs> so I love, I love the question, and thank you so much for being so honest with the experience you had because. Yeah. I think the key is we all have different experiences and they're all normalized in our brains. And so you saw what happened with your dad and especially all those experiences you talked about earlier. And so you stayed as far away from everything that reminded you of your dad. So did I. My dad was essentially sober, not because he had ever had a problem, by the way. He just did not drink. Uh, he drank a couple of times in, in the army and hated it. So he stopped, never touched weed. Mm-hmm. He was like straight edge. And So I also went the other way. It's just my other way was different than your other way. You know, meth came after I had pretty much a similar experience with that I did with alcohol, with cannabis, with weed. And so I started smoking weed. And then while I was drinking and smoking weed pretty regularly, by the time college came, I was like a daily user of both. And all the people around me were as well. Uh, I had a huge breakup. Like, you you know, those that first relationship, the one you thought you were going to marry and all that, mm-hmm. you know, like when that one broke up, it destroyed me because I was already thinking I was a guy that no girl was ever going to spend the rest of her life with in love. And so now it was proof, right? Like, oh, great. My girlfriend cheats on me. I'm a, I'm a freshman in college. She hooks up with a senior. It's like the most cliched movie you could ever create in your life. Uh, and I was living it. And so it was proof. And I said, you know what? Even the weed and the alcohol were not taking care of things. So that's when Coke came in. That's when ecstasy came in. That's when acid came in. I just tried to do anything I could to not feel my feelings, if that makes sense. Meth, weirdly, came differently. Meth came because I was living out here in LA. So I'd moved from upstate New York to go to UCLA. And I was already in the state of mind where I would try anything. I didn't care. I tried as all the stuff that I knew how to try and really, really fell in love with ecstasy. My girlfriend and I were doing ecstasy a lot and ecstasy is expensive. It's like 20 to $25 per pill. And by the time you're doing it a lot, you're doing two, three, four pills a weekend. Uh, you know, school was expensive. My parents were paying for school, but that's it. I didn't have a hundred dollars a week on drugs. Like that wasn't a thing I had. I'm going to make a Jew joke. I'm sorry. I, I apologize ahead of time, but like, you know, I'm Jewish. I'm entrepreneurial. So I realized that if I buy in bulk, I could get a discount. <laughs> Not literally. Literally, that's how it went in my head. I was like, okay. Well, this is interesting because what you did was you just sort of like use that. You know, I grew up in New York, so you know, I was surrounded by that sort of like, you know, New York Jewish mentality. Yeah. So I could absolutely see how you would make a decision like yeah, that. Yeah, just got to be scrappy. I'm like, I like ecstasy. My girlfriend likes ecstasy. We have good sex when we're on it. My friends like it. I want to do more of it, but I don't have money. Oh, this dealer will give me a break of $5 per pill. By the way, this is not a tutorial on how to become a drug dealer because I never, I always feel bad. Like when I talk about this part, I don't ever want somebody to go, oh shit, I now know how to become a drug dealer. So I had to borrow $750 to buy 50 pills. I borrowed them from a friend and I was like, I'll pay you back next week. And I bought those 50 pills. And now I was making money on every pill I've sold. So the first time I did it, I saved a very small amount of money because my girlfriend and I used most of the profit. The next time I made a little bit more money. And the time after that, I made enough money to not need my friend's uh, loan anymore. And I was entrepreneurial. Like I had my own business. It was just drug dealing, but it's still a a wholesale business. That's all it is. I was like in retail, direct to consumer. And um, business blew up. Like this is the thing, you know, being a drug dealer is a seller's market. If you have drugs and they're not terrible and killing people, you will have a lot of customers. So I would say within two months of playing this, 
I had friends of friends asking me to buy. I was buying hundreds of pills now instead of 50. Like literally within six months, I was probably buying two, 300 pills at a time instead of 50 at a time. And I had money for the first time. I had all the drugs I wanted. And all of a sudden, I had a lot of new friends. And nobody can see me right now, but I'm putting that in air quotes, right? When you have money and you have drugs around you, people come out and really like you. It's very bizarre. So I lived that life. And then one day, somebody off asked me if, uh, if I could get the meth. I'd never even heard about it before. And I'd made all this money from this. I didn't want to reject my customer. And so I looked into it. Another friend got us some. And that was the first time I tried it myself. And I got to say, we went out to a club that night. And I was very unimpressed. God, I'm getting really graphic on this. Okay, whatever. I've, I've never told a lot of these stories personally before, but this will be fun. I did meth. We went out to a club. I didn't really feel anything. But then we came home. The club closes in LA at two o'clock. So we got, come back home and I was uh, sleeping on the couch in, these, in my friend's dorm. Remember, I'm like 21 years old. I don't care about anything. So sleeping on the couch, but I can't sleep all night. But it's worse. Because meth will make you horny and not able to sleep all night. So I spent the literally the whole night on the couch, like wishing I could have sex with nobody who's awake. And apparently that started a love affair for me with a drug because within um, a couple of weeks, I did it again. I started using it to stay up to study constantly at school. Um, the thing about meth is once you start using it, it's hard to stop using it because it keeps you up, but then it makes you crash after. So I'd keep using it. And I was a daily user of meth probably within six months of the first time I tried it. Okay. So the first time you try it, you're don't feel much of an effect, makes you horny. And you're like, well, I like feeling horny. So I'm just going to, I'm going to get some more and I'm going to do it again. Now, when I see, I'm going to sort of accelerate this out a little further. When I see people like I once, I'm sure you, you've heard of or seen the book, Faces of Meth. Have you ever seen that? Yes. Okay. So when I see the Faces of Meth book, and for those that don't know what I'm talking about, it's basically uh, a photographic journal of people who've been on meth. And it's what they look like before and what they look like after. I, I, it, it's so terrifying to me, it, like their teeth falling out and their face, you know, sh being like concave and all of those things. Was there any part of you that felt like, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> or were you like, you know, whatever, I'm horny. This is, this is fine. That's, I love this question. So first of all, faces of meth was not out when I was using, this is in 2000. Okay. Uh, when I was using and meth, again, like here's the thing, right? You don't know what you don't know. I had no awareness of what meth was until I tried it. It made me, I taught myself accounting in a day and a half of not sleeping at all and just studying my accounting class. And I got a B or B plus in the final and passed a class in accounting that I never went to because of that drug. Right. So it was good for that. Mm -hmm. And I got laid for like a 21 year old. There wasn't a lot more I could have asked for. And I made a lot of money out of it. Right. As I started selling an addition to ecstasy, I was making a ton of money off of it. So no, that wasn't a problem. Although I got to tell you when you start meeting, cause you know, to be a meth dealer, you got to meet other meth dealers and users. That's how it works, right? You, you got to make your wholesale connections. The world that I got into as this escalated was insane. I mean, if you've ever seen traffic or you've seen, um, I don't know, Orange is the New Black is like the, they don't deal so much with the dealing part. Like, if, but if you've ever seen a movie about drug dealing, 
I lived every single one of those pieces. The Mexican cartel meetups on the border with, you know, there were Nextel phones back then with the, like the walkie talkie where you'd meet in a strip club and they give you a, a phone to handle. And then you'd meet up on like a showdown where they walk out with two, five pounds of meth and you walk out with like $50,000 in cash and you make the exchange in the middle. Insanity, like lived insanity. I got robbed at gunpoint multiple times. Um, once literally gun held to my head, I had to buy a gun. Like it was insane. I lived like Scarface, uh, but just in LA. That was the part that made me start realizing, oh shit, I can't, this is not good. Like, I, you know, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a human resource manager in a bank. Like how the fuck did I end up in this place? This is not where I was supposed to end up. Well, this is interesting because like, you know, you're not, you know, when I think of drug dealers, I grew up in Queens in New York. And when I think of drug dealers, it's not like a Jewish kid from Tel Aviv. Like that is not- There's a lot of us though, but yeah. Okay, maybe, maybe so, but it's not, it's definitely not the image that I have. You know, I sure. know that you're, you know, you're like, you're, you're rolling around in your Lincoln Navigator, you're selling drugs, you're addicted to drugs, you're listening to hip hop. I mean, like when you think about that, can you remember in great detail now that you're sober or that, that period of your, your life, or is it like a blur to you? So two things. First of all, I'm not sober. I haven't used meth since 2001, mm. but I'm not sober, okay. which is part of my whole, my whole different approach to addiction. Um, Look at me, to addiction. Look at me talk, being judgy. Okay, got it. We, we, can, we can talk about that in a second. I just want to clarify because <laughs> okay. a, a lot of people make that mistake and I'm not. Um, and I don't consider, I consider myself an ex-addict, not an addict. So that's one thing. Uh, the second piece is, oh yeah, I can absolutely remember it. Like I lived all over LA during that time period and we will drive by streets and I will describe in full detail Deals we've done there, shady shit that happened, fun, amazing stuff that happened. I'm friends with like five or six people now who knew me back then too. We don't talk about it much anymore because it's been literally 20 years. But every once in a while, one of us will go, oh shit, do you remember that night? And uh, we'll reminisce for a second. Speaking of remembering that night, can you take me back to the motorcycle accident and hmm. how that accident sort of triggered the police intervention and interest in you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing about that story is I was about a week or two sober from meth. I tried to quit meth a lot and I just couldn't do it. And um, I had this realization at some point that I would have to stop selling it. Like I couldn't sell it and quit at the same time. That was not going to happen. Now, the reason that sucked is I was making, I don't know, 10,000 a month from selling meth, maybe more. Also, I was getting laid a lot because of it. And um, again, for a 22, 23 year old man, that means a lot. Yeah. And so I had to make the decision. A lot of people were mad at me. When I say a lot of people, I mean, my clients were like, what the fuck you don't, you know, come, come on, you know, just, I, I need, I need a connection, whatever. Cause I, I sold good stuff always. And they were like, they were mad. So people were mad at me for this, but I'm managing for the first time. I think I might've, might've made it two weeks. But I was still selling drugs. It just I wasn't selling meth so that I could not use it myself. So I was out delivering. Now, there's complexity to this. I'll explain and you can tell me if I'm getting into too much detail. But I had already been arrested in Beverly Hills about three years earlier on Halloween. And uh, I'd spent just like three, four, five days in Beverly Hills jail, got out, did this little program or whatever, um, and was on probation. My probation ended 
I think maybe a month, but I think it was more like two weeks um, before what I'm about to describe here. Because I hadn't driven through Beverly Hills in three years. Or maybe I think in about two years, two to three years. And um, so I'm out delivering. And I have I started out the day with a pound of Coke in my jacket. And I had two guys who were selling for me. And so I had to go drop off. I don't know why I had to go drop off. They could have picked it up. But I, I went and dropped off essentially like a half a pound with one and I think about a quarter pound with another. So I'm still left with a quarter pound of cocaine in the lining of my jacket as I'm riding my motorcycle. And uh, I'm going on Olympic. For anybody who's in LA, you'll recognize the streets. I'm going on Olympic towards um, like Westwood, which is where I was living. And there's this weird intersection in Beverly Hills. It's like a three-way intersection around where Beverly Drive meets Olympic meets Beverwell. Really, it's always a weird intersection. And I'm stopped at a light, two cars on my, my sides because I get to split lanes. And I start going when the light turns green, but the car in front of us, you know when people do that thing where they try to take a left as soon as the light turns green, even though it's not an arrow, to try to cut off traffic and hurry up? Yep. Okay, so this woman did that. But I'm on a bike, so I'm faster than her. So I start going and she's going and I'm about to hit her. The two cars on my right and my left screech to a halt, but I can't. I'm on a bike, so if I block all the brakes, I'm going to hit her anyway. So I do the natural thing in my head which is to try to turn away. But I was like on a Harley on a cruiser. So those things don't turn very fast. So I go to the left and then I come back and I almost made it like one more inch and we wouldn't be talking right now because as I come up, my leg gets caught between the bike and her bumper. Um, so I didn't make it. Like if I had two more inches, one or two more inches, um, I would have been fine. I would have ridden away and this would just been a scary story and I'd probably still be a dealer or dead or in prison. But I caught her bumper and my leg cracked. And when I say cracked, I mean, I didn't even feel it break. It was so fast and it was so impactful. It literally just like got jammed between this heavy bike and her BMW. And so I looked down though. I knew something happened and I looked down and my shoe is gone. I'm like, what the fuck happened to my shoe? And then I noticed that my leg is just dangling. Like Ugh. it's from the middle of my shin, it's just dangling. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Something happened. I have no idea. I still have no pain, but I knew something happened. I'm like, I have to stop this bike. And then it dawns on me that my leg is broken. Still no pain, but leg is broken. I'm still riding the bike. I never fell off the bike. So and I you were going not str- you were not high at all. Not high. I'm going another hundred feet, two hundred feet, but I, I come to a stop. You can't. If anybody knows motorcycles, your brake on your foot is on the right foot, which is the one that broke. So I can't brake that way. I'm braking with my right hand slow the bike down, stop it. And then I get off. And this was insane. This is a heavy bike. So I have to get off on my left foot, not touching my right foot on anything. I move my foot over, put the bike down on the ground. And the moment the bike hit the ground and I was safe, this shooting pain came through my entire body. It felt like, I mean, the only way I can really describe it is it felt like somebody threw me into boiling water and started stabbing me at the same time. Mm. And I just fell on the ground. And just start screaming in pain, just swearing and screaming in pain. Um, cops came. I mean, ambulance came. The traffic has stopped. I'm stopping this three-way traffic. I see people all around. And um, and they load me up into a gurney. Now, here's the thing. I'm a drug dealer, so I also know I have to be protective. So I pulled my license out of my back pocket. It was in my wallet to have it ready for the cops so they wouldn't search me. Cause they had no reason to suspect that I did anything wrong. I, I was the one getting an acid and I was trying to save right, myself. Right. But here's the thing, because I'd been stopped at Beverly Hills before 
I think when they saw who I was, they knew that they might might as well search me. Either that or they were already following me. It's hard to kind of really tell the difference. But um, they took my jacket off my body. I really fought them on it, but they took it off of me and then they found a quarter pound of cocaine. And, um, you know, a lot of people like to use blow, but a quarter pound is a lot of cocaine. So they knew something was up. They tried to get me to snitch. They arrested me in the hospital. They tried to get me to snitch on other people. I wouldn't. And so three months later, the SWAT team came to my house and decided to finish the job. All right. So let's let's stick a pin in it there. This was the second time that you were arrested or the first? Overall, it was the fourth time I was arrested. The fourth time. Okay. So first, second, third time, were you like... Was there ever a time where you went like, this has got to stop. I'm not doing this anymore. Or were you defiant and said like, that's not going to happen again? I didn't see it as defiant. I saw it as I was trying to evolve. So like after that, um, the last arrest, so I, I, I would spend like a night in jail or two or three days, which is not that big a deal. And I had money. So I would just get my guys to bail me out and hire a lawyer. But you know, the time before that I got arrested coming back from a strip club at like, 3 a.m. with a, with a girl in the car. It was Halloween. I was dressed like a freak. And um, they stopped me and they arrested me and let her go. And what they taught me is you have to be really careful with the way you carry your drugs. So I would have other people carry them for me. I would hide them in really interesting places in the car. I would, like, I thought I was, I thought I was clever. It's not that I um, said this can't happen again. I just thought I was clever. But by the way, I'd never been clubbed over the head. Like, you know, I never spent a month or two months or a year in jail. I spent like three days in Beverly Hills jail. The, you know, the accommodation sucked, but whatever, it was three days. I got out. It felt okay. Right. You weren't in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. You were in Beverly Hills. Even, even I'm sure Beverly Hills is not great, but it's, you know, it's still not the, you know, it's not Vietnam. It's All not. right. Now the SWAT team comes in. You're sleeping. It's at, in the morning, uh, at night. It was eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. I was sleeping. I was passed out. I took, um, I was back to using meth. And so I'll take GHB at night to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. A lot of it. And so I'll kind of use meth during the day, take GHB at night to fall asleep. So I was like passed out when they came in. All right. So now they, they, I'm assuming knock on the door. You don't answer. They break it. They break the door down. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. They went to the landlord and got him to let them in. But yes, they, uh, they rushed my apartment by eight Oh five. All right. So now you open your eyes, you got SWAT team everywhere. They hook you up, they take you to jail. What happens from there? Mm. So, you know, I was talking about the kind of life that I lived at that point. And I have to say this, everybody's watched Scarface, right? Like most men and maybe most women have watched Scarface, the movie at some point. And so yep. I, um, I was a huge fan. I thought Scarface was like one of the best movies ever. Remember those huge posters? You might still have some of these. Mm-hmm. Remember the posters that were like the size of half a wall? Yeah. So in my living room, I had one of those from Scarface, that scene where he broke his, or he got <laughs> shot in the arm and he like has his gun on the table. You know the scene I'm talking about? Yeah, I just have this, I just have this picture in my mind oh. of the cop looking at that picture while he's hooking you up. Oh, but go ahead. just wait. It gets insane. So they come arrest me in my bedroom, which was one room over, and um, I had a gun by the bed, which almost got me shot. So thank God they didn't shoot me right there. But um. My leg is broken still, right? It's three months. I'm still in a wheelchair when this is going on. I just got my crutches. So four cops dressed in all black SWAT gear have to carry me out into the couch in the living room. And then they place me on this couch. Now I can't see this, right? Because I'm on the couch. But I can't get this image out of my head of this kid 
drug dealer with a broken leg sitting on a couch while cops were rummaging through his house with a Scarface poster behind him of a guy who got shot dealing drugs and is about to die, but he doesn't know it, right? It was the ultimate fuck you to what I was doing. And it really felt at this point like, I don't believe in God per se, but like something was sending me a, a signal to say, yo, you have to stop. I couldn't walk. I'd been arrested in a bad way this time. So most of the people that I was dealing with didn't want to deal with me anymore because they didn't know if the cops were across the street watching me the whole time, you know? And now I can't walk and I'm about to go to jail. So these guys take me, it's Beverly Hills PD that, that arrested me. And so the cop, the main cop was the guy who was trying to get me to snitch for three months at that point. So as they're pointing the guns at me in my bedroom, he's like yelling at me. So I told you I'd be back. You know, remember me? One of those kinds of things, like totally from the movies, like judgment day or something. And, um, yeah. and he, they take me out to jail and they take away my crutches because those could be weapons. And as I leave, I see like the hazmat suits are coming in and they're doing a full search. Like they're searching in the air conditioning vents. They're searching everywhere. And I had a feeling I was fucked this time. Yeah. But I was in jail for a few hours in Beverly Hills when it really dawned on me that like, oh shit, like this is the real deal. They'd found I had a lock safe, I had all these things. They, you know, they were now asking for the combo for the, where the key is. And I wasn't really smart at this. So like my ID was with all my stuff. It was insane. But they found thousands of ecstasy pills, ounces of meth, you know, ounces of cocaine, LSD, like things to make MDMA. It was, it was bad. And now they had all my money and they had everything. And so it's, uh, you know, it was the ultimate stop sign, stoplight cliff to kind of say to me, yo, you, you don't have a lot of choice right now, right? Like you can either screw up the entire rest of your life or you got to figure something else out. All right. So now you're in jail, obviously awaiting some form of trial, plea deal, and then you get sentenced. What period of time was it? from the time that you were in jail to the time that you went back and served time. Yeah. So I, um, they put me in jail first. Now again, gun, all these drugs, manufacturing charges. They put me in jail, uh, and a broken leg in this kind of like hospital setting. And my bail is set at $750,000. And my parents were trying to raise the money to, you know, get me out. And I told them, don't even think about it. Let me sit here. Let me figure this out. I'm going to go see the judge in a few days or whatever. Let's just sit on this for a minute. And so they did. And I spent about a week first in jail. So the first thing was a week. And uh, during that week, it was, I mean, I'm not going to get into detail, but it was disgusting. It was like a hospital wing of a bunch of guys who either broke their legs, got shot, whatever, and were in the hospital and jail at the same time. Went in front of the judge. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, he lowered my bail quite a bit to like $50,000 from $750,000. My parents came up with the five grand and I was out. But I was like, it was not everybody knew what was going on before they just thought it was a loser. They knew what was going on. So what happened was everybody said, you got to go to rehab. If you don't go to rehab and you don't clean up your act, you're screwed and you're going to go to prison for like 20 years. All the quantity, the gun, everything, it looked really, really, really terrible. And so just for self-preservation, I said, let's go to rehab. You know, that's the only thing I could think of. This is what's interesting to me. I'm, I'm sort of placing myself in your shoes and simultaneously placing myself in the judge's shoes because maybe I'm wrong here. You can correct me because I definitely don't know anything about this world, but do most drug dealers use or not? All the drug dealers that I knew used. I'll, I'll explain it like this. The guy above me 
had about six or seven guys like me who he would supply. These guys got like, again, this is like traffic movie kind of stuff, right? Like they got Colombian cocaine wrapped in those things you see on TV when they catch them. They're like duct tape wrapped. They're called birds, but like um, kilos of cocaine. So he would get those and he would spread those between all of us to sell. Mm -hmm. So I was above my guys, but he was above me. That guy was moving many, many kilos of cocaine every week. The guys above him were now like mafia and cartel. So I wasn't, you know, those of us below those guys, we partied. We used the money to go to Vegas and get fucked up and and have fun. And uh, we always had more money and we always had more drugs. And I think the guys above us were smarter than that, but we were not. You were also pretty young. Yeah, I was 25 when I got arrested. So 20 when I started this stupid reality. All right. So now you get sentenced. How much time do they give you? Well, I had 13 felony counts when it started. I fought the case. I ended up getting sober. I relapsed in rehab in the middle and had to find another rehab. But I um, I cleaned up. So by the time I got sentenced, I was down to nine felonies. We got the gun charge dropped, which is very important. And I'd been clean for eight months. And the judge saw me you know, every single month with my family there, with the people from the sober living in the rehab. So he knew that I'd been doing better. The DA was willing to give me to give me down to three years. That's the lowest he was willing to do. Um, and so we kind of plead. We had this open plea thing with the judge. And I was lucky. He gave me one year. All right. So now you serve one year. And I'm assuming it's in federal jail, yeah? No, no, no. This was down in L.A. County Jail. Fortunately, there was nothing federal about my case. There was no transportation across state lines. Everything happened in California. Because if it was federal, it would have been, I'm assuming, a much longer sentence, Yeah. A, it probably would have been a much longer sentence. B, the next part of the story where I got to spend eight months of that year in like what's called a work furlough program where you work during the day and go back to jail at night, which is a cush thing compared to being in jail all day, wouldn't have been able to happen. Okay, got it. All right, so now from there, things start to take a positive turn for you. You went on to completely change your life. Um, and get a master's degree, get a PhD. What was it that facilitated that final breaking point where you're like, fuck this shit. I am not doing this anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, it started really with that relapse in the first rehab I had. I didn't realize how important me getting this right was until I almost lost all of it in a split second when I, um, I used when I was in rehab got caught, got kicked out of rehab. And now it was kind of a, it was a problem in many, many different ways. Not the least of which was the fact that the rehab I had spent three months in was not going to recommend, you know, me flight of sentencing because I just relapsed. So I kind of had to start and I had to go back to the drawing board. And what I realized is, oh, I really have to handle this shit or I'm going to spend 20 years in prison. And so that was the first part. The second part was honestly actually being in jail. Like, um, there's no easy way to describe it. You've seen it in movies, but you can't like most things in the world. You can't understand it until you've actually been part of it, you know, and jail is that way. There's no other thing that I've ever experienced in my life that is boring, dehumanizing, uh, and scary all at once. You know, there's nothing to do. The lights are always on. You barely sleep. That's the boring part. It's dehumanizing because they put you where they want. They tell you what to do from the first second you're there, the bend over stuff, all that stuff you've seen. It's all true. So you feel like not a human. You feel like an animal. And then it's also scary. Like I'm a Jewish kid. All the other white guys were like neo-Nazis essentially. 
And then there's all this race stuff going on. I mean, it's freaky. You know, I, I didn't go through this, but I know other people who almost got raped, but I got in some fights. Like it is nowhere you want to spend time. And after you spend months and months and months in a place like that, when I got out, I just remember wholeheartedly saying, I will do whatever I have to do to never set foot in that place again. So I guess in some ways, jail is rehabilitative sort of from the perspective of, I just never want to be back here again. Yeah. So, you know, in that sense, I don't know that jail is rehabilitative. Jail is a deterrent. Yeah. Jail didn't teach me anything, but here's the thing. And I think this may be really important to say, and uh, I don't know if I've ever written an article on it, but I'm about to write a note for myself to do that. Um, Jail is a deterrent the first time you do serious time. If you're the kind of person who had to deal with whatever you had to deal with outside and then you got rearrested and you've done that multiple times, jail stops being a deterrent. And the reason is simple. Look, we all get used to whatever life is. You just told me. Yeah, it's Tuesday. It becomes Tuesday, right? And guys would talk like that on the inside. Um, They would say, oh man, I I was out nine months this time. Or, oh man, I I was only out for two months this time. Like They would just talk about their in-jail time and their out-of-jail time. Because that's the life they'd gotten used to. In that moment, it's not a deterrent anymore because you've just gotten used to the thing. So for me, this first time that I did real time where I, you know, I spent four months in LA County central men's jail. Again, I I'll, I'll give two things that will prove to everybody why they never want to go to jail. You've never taken a dump while somebody else is showering and somebody else is brushing their teeth right in front of you in the room. That's uh, that's a joy you get to experience there. And then the other thing is there's no um, no choice, like zero choice. No choice in when you shower, no choice in when you make phone calls, no choice in when you get to eat. So you're living constantly at the whim of these, let's be honest, not exactly the, most, the nicest, most uh, accommodating humans on the face of the earth who are the guards. And I get it. They have a tough job, but you're stuck in the middle of it. Is there a part of you now that has such a profound sense of gratitude, you know, that when you, I once interviewed somebody and I remember, you know, he was saying to me, like, you know, driving down the road, I'd look at the traffic light and I'd be like, oh, thank God for you. You know, because there was just this wonderful sense of gratitude for everything because it was so radically different. Does that sort of exist in your life right now where you have this massive reference point from where you were to what you have now? And and do you, you do? 100%. Okay. okay. 100%. Every day, all day, it'll never go away. And I also think I have a sense of empathy and understanding for people that most people throw away because they go, oh, he's a fill in your blank. I've been there. I've been one of those people. People to this day will say, oh, he's a ex-con, mm-hmm. he's whatever. And, um, and discount who I am as a human being. And I understand that's a scary freaking thing that I've been through. Um, but yes, I'm grateful and I share about my gratitude and I try to help other people. I'm grateful for whatever their situation is all the time. Well, let's talk about that. You and your wife, are you married to Sophie or is that your girlfriend? I am. Okay. Married three kids. Married three kids. Okay. Mazel tov, as they say. You Thank guys you. created uh, a company called, or a program, uh, maybe you can describe it, called Ignited. I think if I'm using the acronym correctly. Um, can you sort of describe the work that you two do there and maybe talk a little bit about uh, Sophie and how you guys met? Yeah. So I met Sophie at UCLA. So as you mentioned, when I got out of jail, went and got my master's. By the way, getting my master's was literally a byproduct of not being able to get hired because I was a nine-time convicted felon. 
So nobody wants to hire you when you're a nighttime convicted felon. Couldn't get a job, looked for nine months. Um, didn't really know how to get out of my parents' um, pocket, right? They were paying for everything. And so I went to school, the only school that didn't ask if you've been convicted of a felony, Cal State Long Beach. And so I went there, got my master's, eventually got my PhD. I met Sophie my first quarter at UCLA in my PhD program. And um, she was dating somebody at the time. So it took us a few months before we kind of started getting together. But Sophie was like the antithesis to the life I used to live. Very like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, super optimistic, loves everybody, loves life. And you know, we've now been together for 15 years. We've been through our ups and downs, but Sophie's taught me a lot about the way to look at the world and has made it much more possible for me to be connected to my gratitude regularly. So I'm always even grateful for meeting her so that I could have that experience. And she's a social influencer. She does really, really amazing things in the world, helping people with wellness and positivity. And I wanted to start Ignited initially as uh, as workshops and retreats. So she did Ignited Women retreats and we did Ignited Couples retreats. Then we started a podcast around relationships, which is relationships writ large. So like your relationship to money, your relationship to success, all these different kinds of relationships that you have in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually just hit a million downloads. So I'm pretty excited about that. And um, amazing. Thank you. Thank you. It's been about two years. And um, so that's been amazing. We just had our first live event this last year and like 80 people showed up and connected to us. So we got to meet our community. But yeah, you know, I don't even know if I'd call it paying it forward or making up for my sins. I don't really know which it is, but I know I want to create impact. By the time I'm gone, I want to feel like what I went through served some sort of purpose. And uh, that's a big one for me. Are your parents both still alive? No, my dad passed about 10 years ago, unfortunately. He got to see me straighten up, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And he got to find out that he's having a grandchild, but he didn't, never got to meet that grandchild. Um, and your mom is alive. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And is she here in LA? No, she's back in Israel. My whole family is now back in Israel. Hmm. Do you time. go back? I go back every year, every summer. Okay, so there's, there's no issue with you with a felony degree traveling or anything like that, yeah? No, there's issues around work or certification. That's why I'm not a clinical psychologist. Mm. So a lot of those things kind of come up, but no, there's no, uh, I have no more restrictions. I also got my record expunged. I came back five years after the conviction, serving my time and ending probation. And the judge threw, he didn't throw out my conviction. It's called getting it expunged, which essentially means that now if somebody asks me, have you been convicted of a felony? I can say no, if I want to, although I don't. Well, that's, that's uh, why don't you, why did you get it expunged if you don't, use that expungement? First of all, I got it expunged so I don't have a record. If something were weirdly to happen in my life and I got arrested again, I'm, I'm not a repeated offender. But that's, okay. but that's not the main reason why. The main reason why was to prove that I, I, made, I made the full turnaround, right? Like I, I got to the other side. You have to understand, nobody, and I say this because I want people who are listening to this and are struggling themselves, have a partner who struggles, a kid, a dad, whatever, Nobody, not a single human being in my life in 2001 when I got arrested had any notion that this is where I'm going to end up. No one. My family would have been happy if I got a job at the mall and worked full time. By the way, nothing wrong with jobs at the mall, but I'm just saying like, if I managed to do that, get a job, keep it full time, not get arrested again and not get re-addicted to drugs, my family would have been happy. The fact that I've done this is not even a cherry. It's like a different cake. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, we just walked into an entirely different universe. And the reason I don't keep quiet about what happened is 
you know, I have this bracelet on my wrist. It says fuck shame. It's part of the motto I used in one of my Ted talks. Um, I don't want to hide behind my current reality to avoid the story of how I got here in order to make other people feel more comfortable with who I am. And I feel like a lot of us do that. A lot of us don't tell the stories that hurt because we want to present a really nice facade, but that facade is just that it's a costume. It's a facade. It's not, it's a mask. It's not real. And so one thing for sure is that everybody in my life knows who I am as close to hundred percent as I can get them to it. Does that include your children? Um, my kids know I went to jail. They haven't gotten the full story because they wouldn't understand it, but they both know I went to jail. Yeah. That's great. That's great. What a, what a beautiful gift that you can give them of how, um, certainly redemption, how things can come full circle. And also, you know, maybe perhaps a warning of what's, you know, what could be if you're not careful. So I love that. I could tell the weirdness for them initially, but I think I also wanted to normalize it because the thing again, right? We all think, oh, went to jail, horrible person. I don't want them to think that. Not even just about me, about other people because they're going to meet people who've made mistakes and I don't want the mistake to be the defining moment of somebody's life. I love that. So as we wrap up here, I'm going to move into the, um, the rapid fire round of the show. So Answer as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friend say is one of your superpowers? Hmm. I'm committed and I'm loyal. I think those would be, I guess, two. So maybe committed to the people in my life. So loyal. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? I'm afraid of missing the mark. I'm afraid of not creating the impact that I really want to. What keeps you up at night? Honestly, man, not much. What's the one thing that you want to get better at? I want to get better at owning my victories and my successes. I, I find like I'm, I'm still, I still hide a little bit. Academic in me, the kid that's like a, in a PhD program, always feel like it's wrong to celebrate successes. Mm. What book have you reread the most or re-listened to? Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. I know you've given TED Talks before, but if you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about, and it can be on anything you like or have a passion for, what would it be? Probably about music. Interesting. Like like what exactly? When I moved out to LA, I moved out to become a professional musician. Uh, I spent a few years in that storyline that we were talking about. That's why I had a recording studio. Uh, being a DJ, I love music. Music is the, the thread that's kept me going and alive oftentimes. It's interesting. We share, um, we share some similarities there. Um, I was a DJ uh, in my 40s and I traveled around the country doing EDM festivals and things like that. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, different, uh, different part of my life, but, uh, well, dude, this was every bit of, um, the conversation that I thought it was going to be. I'm super excited to get to meet you in person, get to know you, um, your reputation precedes you. You are extraordinarily articulate, open, and just a really, really nice guy. So I just want to thank you for taking the time and being as willing to be as vulnerable as you were on the show in an effort to, uh, to share this uh, with everybody in the world. And 
before we go, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? I want to let people know that there's always hope. It literally doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter what's gotten you to the moment where you're listening right now. It doesn't matter how hopeless or helpless other people have told you you are. There is always, always hope. And whether it's my book, The Abstinence Myth, or that Ignited program that Rob was talking about earlier that I do, or somebody else's work that you just really resonate with, I want you to think of it as your job to keep searching for the answer that fits you. That's it. I love that. We're going to leave it right there. Uh, D, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Rob. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.